Well, good evening. Uh, Acts chapter 12, I am going to read most of this chapter before we pray. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up, quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this evening that uh, you are in control of all things. You're in control of this world. You are in control of our lives. We pray that as we navigate living in the midst of a kingdom and on an earth where your values are not often upheld, that we would do so with grace, that we would effectively and faithfully represent the values of Jesus Christ, the grace and the mercy and the truth that he came to bring. We praise you that in Jesus we have life. Tonight, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would open up our minds, help us to understand what it says. I pray that you would remove the distractions that follow us in here from our week. 
Father, I pray, move in our hearts that you would soften them, make them receptive to your Spirit's voice. Take away our rebellion, our pride, our fear and anxiety that would keep us from trusting you. Allow us to trust you. And Father, move then in our hands and our feet that we might obey you. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had that sense when standing on an elevator that when you press the close button, it doesn't actually do anything, that maybe it doesn't really close the elevator. So you're standing on that elevator and you hear someone running around the corner saying, hold it, and you go, no, right? And you're pressing that close button, trying to get it to close because you're in a hurry. You don't want that person on there. And right at the last minute, before it starts to close, they get their hands in there, they get in the elevator and you go, okay, fine. And you press the button again and eventually it closes and you think, what good is this button? If you've ever had that feeling, Uh, Not only are you not alone, but you are accurate. I ran across an article this week that describes how in most of the buildings constructed since the 1990s, those close buttons are what we call placebo buttons. Uh, They don't work for you. They only work if you are a service person who has a key that can unlock it and then it will work. So you press the button and it makes you feel good, but it doesn't actually do anything. Uh, The article actually put it this way. It said, uh, if you happen to find yourself pressing a non-functional closed door button and later the doors close, you'll probably never notice because a little spurt of happiness will cascade through your brain once you see what you believe is a response to your action. Your behavior was just reinforced. You will keep pressing the button in the future. Now, it turns out that elevator close buttons are not the only placebo buttons around. Some of the others that we see often are at stoplights, the walk sign buttons. Uh, Most of those, uh, again, in the last 20 or 30 years, they are digitally controlled by computers. Pressing that button has nothing to do with when the walk sign changes. But again, you press it, eventually it changes, you go, great, that's a good response. And you walk across and you feel like you are in control. All right, one of the best placebo buttons has to do with the thermostats in offices, Most of the thermostats in new offices don't actually do anything. Uh, They install what's called a dummy thermostat. And they did a survey of HVAC technicians and found that somewhere around 70 to 75% of them said, yeah, we do this. We install dummy thermostats to make people feel like they're in control. One of these guys said this, we had an employee at one office that that always complained of being hot. Our solution was to install a pneumatic thermostat. We ran the main airline to it inside of an enclosed I-beam. Then we just attached a short piece of tubing to the branch outlet, terminating inside the I-beam without being attached to any valves or anything. The worker could adjust her own temperature whenever she felt the need, thus enabling her to work more and complain less. When she heard the hissing air coming from inside the I-beam, she felt in control. We never heard another word about the situation from her again. Case solved. All right, if you didn't follow all the technical lingo, basically, they put a thermostat on the wall that when you turn, went and made you feel like you were doing something, right? But it didn't actually change the temperature. That's called a placebo button. You think you're in control, someone else is in control. As I read that article, I thought, that really is a metaphor for my life, and maybe for your life as well. There are a lot of things that we would like to think that we control, right? We would like to think that we control our health, for example. If I just eat well enough and if I work out enough and if I take extra precaution to sleep well and take care of myself, maybe I'll be healthy for a long, long time. Maybe I won't get sick. Maybe I won't get cancer. And the reality is that our health often is even out of our control. Maybe, uh, for parents, it happens this way. We say, maybe if I just am a good enough parent, 
my kids won't grow up and rebel. Right? Maybe if I study late enough for that test, I can guarantee that I'll get into the right med school, law school, grad school, or the right job one day. And I think I can control my circumstances. That's true on an individual level. It's also true on a global and international level, isn't it? Maybe if I try hard enough, maybe if I'm engaged enough, maybe if I get angry, passionate, frustrated enough about the political process, I can control what God does on a global scale. And maybe if all of us together get angry enough or frustrated enough or passionate enough, we can change the course of human history based on who we elect for an office. I think that's a particularly powerful idea, especially on an election week. The truth is, though, as you look at the scripture, and just practically as we look at our lives, we're really not in control of much, are we? There are very few circumstances around us that we actually control. What we see in this passage is a national leader, a guy named Herod Agrippa, who believes that he can control the course of human history. He believes that he can stop what God is doing in the world and yet he utterly fails. And this is actually a funny passage in many ways. And as we walk through it, what you're going to see is that the passage, in a sense, sort of subtly mocks this guy, Herod, because he runs around pressing buttons and pulling levers and trying to get everything to work out his way, and he utterly fails. And I think this passage speaks to us, particularly in a week like this, in a year like this, when we're headed into a very contentious election where we say, you know what, I'm tempted to panic about the political process. Or, On the flip side, maybe I say, I don't really care. I'm cynical about it. I don't think I should be engaged at all. I don't think it really matters. And I think a passage like this speaks to both cynicism as well as panic. And what it says as we walk through is that God is ultimately in control. What he's called you and me to do is not to control external circumstances, but instead to represent Jesus Christ in every area of our life as we navigate through this world. And so the question as we look at this passage is, how do you and I respond when we're living in the midst of earthly kingdoms, in the midst of a world that is often hostile to the values of Jesus Christ? And how do we do that in a way that represents Jesus well? Because that's what we're called to do. Not to control the circumstances of this earth, but to say, I've been called to a mission to reflect, to proclaim, to preach that Jesus is alive and will one day establish his kingdom on the earth. And now he's drawing men and women to himself to worship him forever. That's what I'm here to do. And recognizing that deflects both cynicism and panic from being a part of my life. And so how do I respond in the midst of a world, in the midst of kingdoms that are opposed to God? All right, let's look at Acts chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod, the king, laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. All right, the first thing we are called upon to do as we look at a passage like this is to recognize the conflict between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. Recognize that there is a fundamental conflict between those who would say, I'm going to establish my own kingdom on the earth and God who is ultimately establishing his kingdom. All right, it helps to know a little bit about who this Herod is. There's a couple of Herods in the New Testament. Uh, This is Herod Agrippa. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. 
Now, you may remember Herod the Great from early on in the Gospels. Herod the Great was the guy that when Jesus is born, uh, he sends some guys out to Bethlehem and he says, I want you to go and kill all the baby boys under two years old, right? Herod the Great is a paranoid, frustrated, angry leader. He also had a bad habit of killing his wives and children. And uh, Herod the Great killed two of his sons, Aristobulus and uh, one other guy whose name is escaping me at the moment, Aristobulus and Aristobulus' brother, all right? He killed these two guys. Now, Aristobulus, before he's killed, he has three sons, and one of those sons is Agrippa. When Aristobulus is killed, Agrippa, who's king now in Acts 12, Agrippa gets sent off to Rome. He becomes friends with Caligula, who later becomes the emperor, and when Caligula becomes the emperor, he elevates his friend Agrippa to the the role of king over Judea. And so Agrippa is ruling over Judea, but the Jewish people don't typically like him because, why? Because he's perceived as being loyal to Rome, who is oppressing the Jews. So Agrippa feels all this pressure to maintain his power and his position by placating the Jews. Best way to placate and please the Jews in the first century is to persecute the Christians because they don't like the fact that the Christians are preaching that salvation can come through Jesus apart from the law. So he grabs James, one of Jesus' 12 apostles, the brother of John, and he has his head cut off. And then he looks and he goes, people seem to like that. So he gets Peter. And he puts Peter in jail. But he doesn't kill Peter immediately because it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. One of the big high holy feasts of the Jewish people. It would have been considered very tacky to walk out in the middle of that feast and start chopping heads off. All right? So he puts Peter in jail and his plan is at the end of the feast, I'm going to kill him. And what we see right away is that Herod has goals that are opposed to the kingdom of God. Herod's goal is to consolidate his power. Herod's goal is to keep a hold of his kingdom. And what we see in the early church, as you walk through and you read their relationship with the earthly powers, their goal then, they don't say, look, we need to get a new Herod on the throne. We need to get rid of this guy and get another one. We need to get a better king. Instead, what they say is that we recognize there is a fundamental conflict between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God because it's an issue of who's in charge. Right? I have a two-year-old son, and often we have this same conflict. Who's in charge? Samuel would like to establish the kingdom of Samuel, right? And the kingdom of Samuel involves him being able to eat candy whenever he would like. Now, he is benevolent. He would give his sisters candy as well, right? It involves him being able to wear whatever he wants, orange socks with a purple shirt or whatever, being able to play with uh, knives or anything lying around the house. And he has an idea of what his kingdom is. Now, we clash, on what that kingdom ought to be, right? The kingdom of the toddlers will not reign in my home, okay? What is my goal? My goal is to help train him to be a child who's not a holy terror to everybody that he encounters. So he'll be a blessing, right? And so we clash sometimes in our goals. As you look at the scripture, what you see is that God and earthly governments often have fundamentally conflicting goals, God is working to bring men and women now to know Jesus Christ, that Jesus died and rose again. He defeated sin. He defeated death. And one day he's going to establish a earthly eternal kingdom that will merge with a heavenly kingdom in which there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more death. And in the meanwhile, no earthly ruler, no matter who wins the election on Tuesday, no earthly ruler will fully identify with the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. Nobody will be able to bring that kingdom until Jesus returns. 
And I think if we fail to recognize that conflict, what happens often then is we panic and we say, well, what happens if somebody's elected who institutes policies that are opposed to God's word? What will happen to us? And as you look at the scripture, it seems like the early Christians were not deeply concerned with that question. Instead, they said, all right, this is happening. We are being persecuted. We are living in a society that is counter to the values of God. And so what do they do? They graciously and they faithfully proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and they don't panic or freak out. But instead they recognize that my primary responsibility is not to be identified with a political kingdom, but to be identified with Jesus Christ. Because there is this conflict in play. What I love as we walk through the passage then is as the early church recognizes this conflict, they don't panic. And it calls upon us and exhorts us, I think, not to panic as well. Look at verses 6 through 11. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up, quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting." All right, I love this passage and I love some of the humor in this passage. Think about this for a minute. This is the night before Peter's about to be killed. If you were in jail and you knew you're going to die tomorrow, how would you spend your time? I might be writing last emails to the governor, right? Please pardon me. All right, finishing that book I always wanted to write, you know. Maybe you just say, bring me some steak. Let me at least enjoy this last evening. Uh, Maybe trying to call mom for the last time. Peter spends his last night in jail fast asleep. Now he's bound to two guards. The guards are asleep. There's guards outside the door. Peter is chained in. And instead of worrying, instead of tossing and turning, he is fast asleep. In fact, so fast asleep that when the angel shows up, Peter doesn't apparently immediately wake up. Now, as you walk through the scriptures, angels are pretty freaky when people see them. All right, they're very scary. They're shiny, they're big, they're bright. People fall on their knees. They start crying. They say, don't kill me. So I imagine this scene, this angel walks into Peter's cell and goes, ta-da, like that, and shines this light right on Peter. And Peter doesn't wake up. And so it says, he struck him in the ribs. All right, so I imagine this angel shining this light. Peter doesn't wake up and he goes, Peter, wake up. And Peter gets up. And he goes, okay, put on your clothes. So Peter puts on his clothes. He goes, don't forget your cloak. Puts on his cloak. And this whole process, Peter is absolutely passive. And in fact, walks outside and he thinks, this is a really nice dream. I'm getting out of jail in my dream, you know? And he has no idea that this is really happening. It's not till they get out on the street. The gates open on their own. They go down some steps. The angel leads him out into the street and then disappears. And Peter looks around and goes, what do you know? This was real, right? Cool. Okay, and so he stands there in the street and he thinks, God has delivered me. Peter is that fast asleep and that relaxed the night before his execution. Why? Because he knows Herod's not in charge. Because he knows that no matter what happens to him, God is in control. And even if he goes out and his head is cut off the next day, God's still in control. 
There's a famous uh, story about Stonewall Jackson, the Confederate general who was also a deeply devout Christian. And once during a battle, one of his men looked over and there were bullets flying everywhere. And there's Jackson and he's sitting in the saddle, perfectly calm and still thinking about what their next move is going to be. And his junior officer asked him later, how is it that you can be so calm when the bullets are flying about your head? And Jackson said, my religion or my faith in Jesus Christ teaches me that I am as safe in battle as in bed. Because God is with me. And he knows my time. And so Peter's not panicked. He's not instituting a plan to overthrow Herod. He's not writing letters to the local Jerusalem Gazette to try to get out of jail. He's fast asleep because he knows that Herod's not in charge. Uh, We see this as we walk through the Old Testament. Guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're about to walk into the fiery furnace because they won't bow down to the huge statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they say, look, we won't bow down. Our God is able to save us from the fire. But even if he does not, we won't bow down because he's in charge. He's in control. And they have that calm assurance of God's presence, even in the face of death. We don't need to panic. No matter what happens nationally, no matter what happens in our world from a political standpoint, we don't need to panic. And I think often when we do and when we begin to convey the impression that our effectiveness as believers in Jesus Christ rises or falls depending on who's in the White House or who is in Congress, we lose credibility for what God has called us to do, which is to reflect Jesus Christ and his values. Several years ago, I was standing at a bus stop with some of my staff here in the college ministry, and I was, as I was standing at that bus stop, a bee started to fly around my head. Um, I hate bees. I don't like them. I'm afraid of them. I've been stung by them many times and I know it's unpleasant. And so as this bee began to fly around my head, I swatted them away and I was kind of trying to look cool on the outside, although I was terrified on the inside and screaming, right? But I'm swatting him away, kind of trying to look cool and he comes back again and he starts circling around my head. So I kind of back up and I swat him away and he comes back again. And I'm thinking, what is the deal with this bee? He is after me, right? And after a couple of minutes, I really began to panic. And I started to kind of dance around and go, ah, you know, like this. And I'm trying to swat him away. And I look over as this is all going on. And the rest of the staff is looking at me going, what's wrong with you, right? It's a bee, right? What's the worst that can happen? Ow, right? That's it. I lost a little bit of leadership cred that day, okay? Because of my panic. And I think the same thing can happen to us as believers in Jesus Christ. We go, but what if this happens? What if, ah, da, da. and we get angry and frustrated and strident and we communicate that the effectiveness of God's plans depends upon the leaders who are in office when nothing could be further than the truth. Herod wasn't in charge. The government of this country is ultimately not in charge. Now, are we called upon to submit to them? Absolutely. Are we called upon then just to be cynical and throw up our hands and say, ah, it doesn't really matter, I shouldn't engage at all? No. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But we are called upon to walk in this world with trust in God and the assurance that he's in control. And don't panic. Don't panic. And that's one thing that marks the early believers, that they believe God is working out his kingdom plan through them, among them, despite what happens in the government. So they don't panic, and then we see them praying constantly for God's people. 
And I think that helps keep them from panic. Look at verses 12 through 19. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. All right. This is another somewhat amusing passage. Peter gets out of jail. He walks over to where the believers are praying. There's a house church in John Mark's mom's house. Peter goes to tell them, look, I'm out of jail. Your prayers have been answered. He knocks on the door. The servant girl comes and she's so excited. She hears him going, hey, it's Peter. And she goes, hey, it's Peter. And she doesn't open the door. And she leaves him kind of sitting out there in the street knocking. She runs back in. She says, hey, Peter's here. Now, I love this. In the translation I'm reading from here, they say, you are out of your mind. Really, in the uh, Greek language, it just, it just really says, you crazy. All right, that's actually what it says. Crazy is one word, out of your mind. They go, look, you're nuts. And she says, no, he's out there. They said, no, it's his angel. Now, it helps to understand what they're saying. They believe that everybody had a guardian angel, and often that guardian angel would appear after a person's death. All right, so these people, upon being told that their prayers are answered and that Peter is standing outside, instead of saying, God has answered our prayers, they say, what must have happened is Peter was killed, and now his guardian angel is knocking at the gate. Okay? It's easier for them to believe that than to believe that God has answered their prayer. They finally listen to Rhoda. They go, okay, whatever. We'll come out. They open the gate and there he is. They get so excited. Hey, Peter, Peter. And he goes, shh, right? Because he's a fugitive. So he motions with his hand, be quiet and listen to what God has done. And he tells them how God delivered them from prison. And I love this passage because it's a beautiful illustration of the power of prayer along with the fact that we often don't really believe it's that powerful. These people are praying. God answers their prayer very specifically and directly, and yet they still struggle to believe it. And I relate to that in so many ways. And yet as we look at how we are to respond when we live in a world and in a kingdom that is hostile often to the values of God, the most powerful tool we have is prayer. Because through it, we communicate with and we access the God of the universe who is sovereign and powerful and in charge of all things. How, does our, how do our prayers play into the eternal plan of God if he's in charge? I don't really know the answer to that. Books have been written with unsatisfactory answers. But what I do know is the scripture says that God listens and God responds and prayer matters and is powerful. And so rather than panicking, we're called upon to pray. So my challenge this week, as you think about the election, as you think about the future going forward, as you think about the state of our world, the state of our country, every time you see a Facebook post about politics, every time you hear something on the radio, every time you see something on TV, every time a friend engages you in a dialogue, take a moment and pull back and pray that God would move through his people to make us effective 
in sharing the gospel, whatever the outcome, however things play out on a national and international scale. As you walk through the letters of Paul, one one thing that's interesting to watch is how Paul responds to the kingdoms that were present in his world, particularly the kingdom of Rome. And as he writes the book of 1 Timothy, the emperor who is on the throne when Paul is writing is Nero. Nero was not a nice man. All right, Nero was the kind of emperor that killed Christians. He often was known to use them as torches at his garden parties. A bad guy. What's interesting is we see Paul in the midst of that environment in 1 Timothy. He says this to his people. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All right, notice this. He says, I want you to pray for kings, pray for those in authority. But he says, he's not saying, I want you to pray that there would be a different Caesar or a new Herod. Instead, he says this, pray basically that they'd leave us alone. Why? So that we can live a quiet, godly life and share Jesus Christ. And his prayer is that the church would be effective in proclaiming that Jesus died and rose again and he is the king. So he says, I want you to pray for that. And you pray for those kings as well. Why? Because God wants them to come to a knowledge of the truth. Later on in the book of Acts, we'll see Paul standing before this Herod, Herod Agrippa. And when he presents the gospel, Agrippa says, in such a short time, Paul, are you gonna, you're going to make me a Christian? Paul says, you know, I wish that everybody was like me, except for the change you put on my wrists. Because he knows that right now, what we're called to do is graciously and boldly proclaim that God is drawing men and women to himself in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that we'll be privileged to do that to respond with grace and truth, to pray for God's people, to pray for his church, to pray for our nation. Then lastly, we anticipate God's justice will one day come. Look at verses 20 to 24. Now he was very angry, that's Herod, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Now, what's interesting is uh, there's a first century historian, Josephus, who actually corroborates this story. He says, Herod went out to stand before these people and it says, Herod put on his royal clothes and Josephus adds the detail that his royal clothes are all silver. All right, so Herod stands up and he is shining like disco and he begins to talk to these people and they begin to say, this is a God. And Josephus says, he felt a pain in his abdomen, he fell down and five days later he died. Because he did not give glory to God, but accepted praise as a God, believing himself to be in control of his world instead of recognizing who was. God judged him. Here in Acts, it tells us he is eaten by worms. Sounds awful. Terrible way to go. But God judges this leader who believes himself to be above God. As we look at our national and international situation, I think often what we forget is that God's judgment will come. 
not only on wicked leaders, but on those who reject Jesus. And so we don't have to panic. We don't have to be angry. We don't have to enforce our own brand of justice. We don't have to make everybody do what we want because we trust that one day Jesus will judge the nations. You see this in Matthew 25. He gathers the nations and he separates the sheep from the goats. He judges them. You see it in Revelation 19. Jesus comes back in a robe dipped in blood and on his thighs written what? King of kings and Lord of lords. Sword comes from his mouth and he wipes out all the nations and their leaders who oppose him. God's justice will come. If not now, it will come later. I was on Twitter this past week and I saw a well-known pastor say something to the effect of, if the president loses this election, it will be because he has supported policies that violate the values of God. And I read that and I thought, maybe. Maybe that would be God's judgment upon the man. But as I look at the scripture, actually, I see that God's judgment is much bigger than losing an election. Much more eternal. Much more permanent. And what we see is that God is arranging things so that his kingdom will reign on the earth forever and ever and ever. And he will judge those who oppose. So we don't need to panic. We don't need to worry. We can anticipate God's justice. Psalm 2 tells us God is seated above the kingdoms of this world. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You see what it says? It says all the nations of the world gather together and they say, we're going to control things. We're going to overthrow God. We're going to make our own path. And it says, God sits up there and he laughs. And then he stops laughing. He says, nope, not really funny. And he terrifies them in his fury. And he sets up his king. And so we look forward to the day when Jesus will establish justice, perfect righteousness on the earth. And we can trust that he will judge with fairness and truthfulness. And so we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear. Right? So as we kind of wrap up here, a couple of applications to think through. First of all, focus your life on representing Jesus Christ. Recognize that your task is to proclaim to the world who he is and what he has done. Maybe that you're here this evening and you don't know Jesus Christ. And the message for you this evening is this, that uh, although you are sinful and separated from God as we all are, Jesus died in your place. He defeated sin. He took it away. He defeated death and he rose again. And all who believe in him will have eternal life and the opportunity to participate forever in the kingdom that he will build and is beginning to build now. And in the meanwhile, for those who know him, our task is to proclaim that message to the world, not only the world around us, but globally, that God's kingdom is supreme, and Jesus is the king. And he's drawing men and women to himself through his grace and mercy. We focus on representing Jesus. Secondly, we pray for the church and the nation. That church is capitalized on purpose. The church, not only here in this building, not only in this town, but worldwide, we pray for men and women who know Jesus Christ, whether they're living in this country where we can freely proclaim the gospel or whether they're living in other countries where they're persecuted, jailed, or even killed for their faith. We pray that the men and women who follow Jesus Christ would faithfully proclaim him, as Paul asks us to pray. And we pray for our leaders that they would be humble and submit to God. 
And then last, we participate in politics, I think. The question, should Christians participate in politics? The answer is yes, but not for the motivation that we believe we can control things by pulling levers and pushing buttons, but for the motivation that in every area of our lives, in our schoolwork, in our relationships, in politics, we are called to reflect Jesus Christ. So it's appropriate to speak out with the values of Jesus Christ for the purpose of saying, this is who he is, and he wants you to know it just as it's appropriate to reflect his values in the way you approach your schoolwork, in the way you approach your friends, in the way you approach your career. Every area of life is to be brought under the submission of Jesus Christ with the understanding that our task is not to elect one leader or another, but to speak into the world that we live in, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. So we're going to close in a a few songs, and as we do, question to lock in front of us is, how do I respond? How do I respond in a political, cultural environment that is often not, not friendly to the values of Jesus Christ? How do I respond? And do I have this mission of Jesus Christ locked in my head where I will say, my purpose is to reflect and represent him because I can trust him. I don't need to panic. And I know that he'll establish his kingdom on the earth in his time. Father, we want to do exactly that, to praise you with everything, uh, with our actions, our minds, in every area of our lives. Father, we trust that there is no corner of this universe that you do not own, that does not belong to you, and that you do not control. So, Father, we pray, protect us from fear, anxiety, panic, protect us from cynicism and hopelessness. And instead, allow us, through the power of your Spirit, to faithfully and effectively represent Jesus Christ in every sphere of our lives. Father, I pray that we would be effective in partnering with you, Father, through your power to draw men and women to know Jesus Christ. We love you, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.